Welcome to Scavenger's Horde, a Star Wars podcast offering news, analysis and commentary. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. This is episode 144 and it's 1st of November 2020. How's your week in Star Wars been, Kirsty? Uh, it's been pretty good because we watched The Mandalorian, mm-hmm. chapter yep. 9. Our first new Star Wars content in a long, long time. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah no it was very exciting and obviously i don't want to talk about the episode right now so we're going to come to that later and have a proper discussion um but yeah it was just really nice to have new star wars again and like i'm just such a nerd i was like watching the logos and i was be like oh my god it's really here because i think i don't know how you feel kirsty but for me the pre-release stuff it hadn't done anything for me it was very sparse to begin with there wasn't really much to go on um and yeah there weren't really even interviews or anything for the cast to get you hyped so i think there was maybe like one entertainment weekly article and that was the main thing of substance so yeah it was just a real pleasant surprise to be reminded of that nice fuzzy star wars feeling i guess yeah they were very low-key with it weren't they yeah i wonder if it's because they know like the memeability of baby yoda and they're just waiting for the first episode to come out so that people go oh baby yoda's back yeah i feel that's got to be part of it yeah and you know i'm i assume that they want to keep a lot of spoilery stuff close to their chest um which they've I think in large part they've ma- managed to do obviously people who are completely immersed in fandom and going looking for those things have probably found tidbits but i'd say it's pretty safe for the general audience at the moment yeah no 100 percent so yeah like i was looking to try and see which directors are going to be coming up you know for the forthcoming episodes and I couldn't even find an indication of who was directing what episode, apart from episode five, which seems to be directed by Dave Filoni. So they're really playing their cards close to their chest. You know, we're going to find out what happens when we watch it, basically. Are there any new female directors this season? That's a good question. Um, Yeah, so I just did a quick Google and I found out that the directors for season two are going to be Dave Filoni, Bryce Dallas Howard, Rick Famuyiwa... Peyton Reed, who did Ant-Man, Robert Rodriguez, Carl Weathers, and John Favreau. So, yeah, mm. unfortunately there aren't any new female directors, and because Deborah Chow is not going to be directing any of the season two episodes, which is really sad because she was the best director in season one. <laughs> oh, it's not it, too sad because we can look forward to Obi-Wan. Yeah. I know what you mean. <laughs> no, that's true. So we're going to have Bryce back, which is good, so I thought she did a really good job on her episode, but... And yeah, it will also be interesting to see what Carl Weathers does because when actors take directing duties, I think there can be some really interesting stuff there. Yeah, no, I I thought that Chapter 4 was directed really well too. Um, Mm. And on my rewatch, I was just appreciating all sorts of things from episodes that hadn't previously been my favourite. Like I know Chapter 5 is pretty divisive in the fandom, but I'm glad I actually found some real joy in that episode the night before chapter nine came out because awesome. obviously it was it was all tied together yeah i'm really glad that you've rewatched much of season one kirsty because i'll be able to like go back to you and ask so what happened in season one again so i haven't watched it since it first aired which is really bad and i do need to rewatch it but yeah i just haven't had time yet so i'll have no, to sit there it's fine there's there's so much tv out there so exactly. I, I get it um, I just I watched a few episodes just the night before it was coming out, so that got me nice and hyped. Yeah, no, it was a really nice thing to do. Um, yeah, and be- besides that, the other stars thing I've been doing is because Kirsty very kindly sent me a link to a Slimo tweet, 
which indicated that The Sims 4 Journey to Batu was half price. I <laughs> now own Sims 4 Journey to Batu. Um, I haven't been able to get too deep into it because it's quite involved. There's a surprising amount of depth to the gameplay. Um, but the most intriguing thing is that you can join the First Order in that game and that you can apparently read Kylo Ren's secret diary, which what? is my number one priority. I have not yet been able to unlock Kylo Ren's secret diary, but I'm working on it. So I'll report back. Dear diary, I love Ray. Do you think she loves me? <laughs> honestly if there isn't something to that effect i'll feel very cheated i wonder if he writes to vader in his diary <laughs> grandfather oh my god <laughs> i met a girl today grandfather i have something very shameful to confess i seem to have <laughs> feelings <laughs> do you, oh not gosh. to get make make this too sad but <laughs> now it's occurring to me like does he know about Anakin and Padme? Does he know that his grandfather was in love? I feel like they need to do like a novel about that sort of thing at one point. Seriously, yeah. we need answers. Like, does he know anything about Anakin's life as Anakin, not Vader? Because the TFA novelization. Uh, I'm, I'm getting way too into the weeds now. <laughs> no, don't worry. It's, it's totally fine. It's, yeah, like I was thinking about the novel that you sent me a link to, Kirsty, which is called Tatooine Ghost. It's a Legends novel. Oh, yeah. So it's no longer canon. But yeah. I think we need something like that in the new EU, you know, like as it pertains to Ben, especially. Because, yeah, I want to know his level of knowledge. I feel like he would know. I feel like he'd know about Vader and Padme. And that would make him like super hyped about what he has going on with Ray. So he'd be like, we're going to do this right this time. It's going to be so awesome. And obviously yeah. it's not, but yeah. I like his aspirational heart. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so the first thing that we want to talk about is that John Baeger has given an interview with Yahoo!, um, where he's promoting his part in the new Steve McQueen drama, Small Axe, which I'm very excited about. It looks really cool. He was asked about the Colin Trevorrow version of Star Wars Episode Nine, um, and basically gave his opinion on it. You're the first journalist to ever ask me about that, he says with obvious excitement. So I'm kind of realising what would have been. It's quite cheeky, actually, for someone to bring that up, because it's not like it was officially released or anything. Yeah, no, it's true. Like, I guess it's like part of the Wild West nature of the internet, isn't it? That the script and all the concept art got leaked to begin with. But mm. yeah, I guess it's almost become public property at this point. It's so widespread, they can't put the genie back in the bottle. But yeah, I think from John's comments, it's safe to say that he seems very keen on what Colin was going for. I think Colin Trevorrow was going to tell that story, Boyega says now, acknowledging that he's seen and loved the unused concept art for Jewel of the Fates. That image of Finn with the blue flag and you have the Atats lined up with tribal marks and the stormtroopers take off their helmets. That would have been sick. That would have been dope, man, hands down. Yeah. Like, and I totally get the appeal of that, you know, because it is really cool looking concept art. And yeah, like, I think it kind of foregrounds Finn as a heroic figure in his own right. And obviously the Rise of Skywalker attempted to do that with what he gave to Finn. But I think, unfortunately, it did end up feeling very secondary to like the main drama that was going on with Rey and Kylo and Palpatine. Like I have read the Jewel of the Fates script, or at least I've skim-read the Jewel of the Fates script, and there's stuff in that script I really passionately dislike, 
But there's also stuff that's pretty well done. And I must say that the way that Finn's arc is handled in that script is much better than what was done in episode 9. So I absolutely get why John would look at that concept art and look at what Trevorrow had planned and feel a bit wistful, you know, for what might have been. Hmm. We can't know, but I have a feeling just looking at like kind of the bones of what's there in Tross and what's in that Skywalker, is it the Skywalker Saga documentary? Yeah, I think so. That was called. Um, You know, they refer to it there as a Stormtrooper Rebellion. I think it's John himself who says that. So I think there's like this idea that because they have the Stormtroopers have already defected, like those ones who are with Janna, and then he teams up with them and they go to take on the final order together. I think that is meant to be a sort of Stormtroopers Rebellion, but it's not really. Yeah. You know, so um, I just think a lot of stuff got watered down kind of as they went along. We know that they were editing things so late in the game. Um, So there could have been some key scenes that that got cut, which is really unfortunate. Yeah. Um, And I haven't read Jewel of the Fates, so I knew vaguely that this was part of that storyline there. But again, this was like first, second draft pretty early in the game, right? Because he didn't have much chance to do beyond that. So who knows what would have stayed there in the final product anyway. Yeah. Um, and to be honest, just speaking from how I feel now, this is not about you know what John's saying because he feels the way he feels. I'm not sure any storyline that would have kind of kept Finn pretty distinct from the story of Rey and Kylo would have been totally satisfactory and done the character justice. Just because of the way things are established in The Force Awakens. Like those three characters are so tied up in each other thematically and you have such clear parallels between Finn and Ben at that point and then it's kind of just dropped and I always thought in The Last Jedi that was a bit more understandable because they were kind of going off and doing their own thing and evolving and then they would come back together but that didn't quite happen Mm. so I'm always going to consider that a bit of a loss because I think Finn and Ben would have had so much dramatic potential together yeah no, I agree with you. So I feel like the Stormtrooper Rebellion idea is a very seductive concept, you know, and there's a lot of narrative meat to that. But I feel like if they were to have done that storyline, as it was in the Colin Trevorrow script, for example, I think it would have still ultimately been secondary to that A plot with Ray and Kylo Ren. And it would have always made it feel like less significant to some extent, you know, and less dramatic and less of the focus of the audience's attention. So, yeah, I think what I really wanted to see and, to be honest, expected to see on the basis of The Force Awakens was something that was much more about Rey, Finn and Kylo slash Ben and how all those characters interacted and what they could do as a team together. Um, But obviously that isn't the direction they ultimately wanted to pursue. And I think that's a shame, but obviously it wasn't my story to tell. So... Yeah, ultimately, I think Finn was done dirty, whichever angle you look at it from. And yeah, yeah, I totally get why John is wistful for a different way of telling Finn's story. There was not too much thinking outside of the box, which I think really did need to happen after The Last Jedi, because Ryan kind of pushed the events of the story kind of beyond Return of the Jedi-like stuff. And then they kind of went backwards and were like, oh, we're just going to do that again, because that's comfortable and that's what we know about Star Wars. And, you know, I totally get what you're saying if you're comparing, like, the Stormtrooper Rebellion to Han and Leia's subplot in Return of the Jedi. 
but it doesn't actually have to be that way depending on how they did it depending on they obviously brought back palpatine as the big bad but they didn't have to do that hux could have been the big bad and ben could have joined finn and ray as part of the stormtrooper rebellion and that could have been plot a you know it could have been the big thing yeah basically it all comes down to execution doesn't it there's ways to execute it where it doesn't necessarily feel like a side plot to like the main emotional drama that's going on with the jedi characters yeah there's another part in this interview that john gives where he sounds a bit more open to the idea of returning to the role of finn yes no which i was very intrigued about um so he signs off the interview by saying i'm a mandalorian fan so lucasfilm is doing very well with the tv shows an animated show would be dope we could do it from home so yeah that struck me as a very pleasant surprise because it seemed like a complete change in tone from his previous comments because i don't have the interviews to hand but i could swear he's given several interviews where he's basically ruled out coming back as finn anytime soon i think pre the rise of skywalker when they were doing press there he actually said no to disney plus yeah so maybe it's just been a case of seeing how it goes like disney plus is obviously in it in its infancy at that point uh, we got news recently that Oscar Isaac has signed on for a role with a Disney Plus series. So, yeah, that's kind of encouraging. Maybe he's been talking to people. Yeah, like, this might sound a bit conspiratorial, and it's not based on <laughs> anything. But reading that comment, and obviously this is a lot to read into a single brief comment, but it did make me wonder if after John gave that very brave interview to GQ if actually Disney slash Lucasfilm got in touch with him and they had like a very frank, honest conversation and like accepted the wrongdoing, you know, and the fact that he wasn't given the priority in the narrative that he deserved. Like, and were basically like, if you want to get involved with us in any way creatively, please let us know. We will work with you to craft a story that does that character more justice. You know, like I did wonder if that's a conversation they've had. And if they have had that conversation, fantastic. I would be 100% on board for a new Finn-centric project. I would love to think that. It was really discouraging after John gave those comments, the total silence from Lucasfilm and Disney. Yeah. Um, Especially since back in May, they were making a point of being supportive of John for the Black Lives Matter protests. Um. I think it's easy for people to make these generic statements of support, but when it comes to, well, actually, you might be complicit in this in some way, yeah, that's kind of hard for people to take ownership of that. I would love to think that, and yeah. I guess we'll we'll see where things go. But yeah, obviously, there's there's a lot more to do with Finn, um, and and a lot of the sequel trilogy characters. But I think, especially, it's been kind of a consensus in the fandom and beyond that. Yeah, that that character had so much to give and he was established so well in The Force Awakens and and I loved his story in The Last Jedi too, but I know that's a bit more up for debate. Um but yeah, it's just not not how the sequel trilogy went, unfortunately. And it was beyond that too, obviously. It was John talking about his experiences actually filming those films. Yeah. Um but yeah, I you know, I would love to think that someone from Lucasfilm has actually reached out and spoken to him about it because if they've done nothing, that's terrible. Yeah, exactly. And like, if they have done that behind closed doors, had that conversation with John, that would be me- more meaningful to me than a public statement because that would actually be them taking action and committing money to like try and repair things and to try and take steps forward. 
It's a tricky one because I think it would have mean a lot to fans of colour, especially black yeah. fans, for them to... And, you know, honestly, I, I would appreciate it for Kelly Marie Tran's sake as well. Yeah, no, For you're them right. to say that they made these huge mistakes with representation. But they, they could do both, you know? Yeah, no, no, yeah, I think you're 100% right. I, I think really both need to happen. Yeah, it's on their mind because I can tell from the stuff they've been bringing out about the new Lego holiday special... They're really pushing the fact that Rose plays a key role in that. And I, it's so transparent that they're trying to win back some good grace from uh, how Rose was treated in The Rise of Skywalker. I think for a lot of fans, it's going to be too little too late. Yeah. Um, which is understandable. So I think yeah. actually, I, we don't have this as a separate news item because we'll talk about the Lego Stars holiday special when it's actually released. But I think something we haven't talked about is that Kelly Marie Tran and Billy D. Williams and Anthony Daniels, of course, Anthony Daniels, are all coming back to do voices in that holiday special. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I was especially pleased to see Kelly as part of that trio of returning cast members because I was like, oh, Kelly, I'm so glad you're still part of Star Wars. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. No, so she's amazing. And Raya and the Last Dragon looks fucking awesome. Sorry for it the does. profanity, but <laughs> I, I'm just so excited for Kelly's career and the awesome parts she seems to be getting. So Yeah, me yeah. too. I will say, coming back to Lucasfilm's PR strategy or what it appears to be, it does seem to be their their tact just to be like completely silent about stuff like this when it crops up awkwardly. Like they've said absolutely nothing about Gina Carano and her terrible statements. Yeah, that's true. Um I think it's just like, oh, if we just ignore it, it'll go away. But uh, it won't, and there are fans that are really, really upset, yeah. myself included, and I know you are too, about what Gina's been saying. Yeah. The concrete action I'd like to see in relation to that is the news report in Variety saying Cara Dune has been recast. <laughs> but I know that won't happen. So No, it won't happen, but how about some trans and non-binary characters and actors? Yeah. That would be a good start. That was probably one of the best parts about the f- premiere episode of season two, The Mandalorian, the fact that Gina Carano wasn't in it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm not bitter at all. <laughs> but yeah, no, I agree with you. We desperately need more representation. Right, so the next item that we want to talk about is that the book Fascinating Facts, which obviously is about fascinating Star Wars facts, not just fascinating facts in general, um, has been released by Pablo Hidalgo. Um, and yeah, there's just some interesting new tidbits of information that I thought we could talk about quickly. Um, yeah, could you read out the first one about Luke, please, Kirsty? Mm-hmm. How Lucas envisioned Luke Skywalker's fate. While some Star Wars fans are still sore about director Ryan Johnson's decision to kill off Luke Skywalker in The Last Jedi, things may well have gone that direction even if George Lucas were behind the camera. Hidalgo points to Lucas's 2012 story treatment for episode 8 and reveals that Lucas's vision of the sequel also involved Luke meeting his end. Hidalgo writes, Years before The Last Jedi began development, the treatment left behind by George Lucas in 2012 also had episode 8 be the one wherein Luke Skywalker would die. Maybe I'm just like not super aware of like that corner of the fandom's beliefs, but I never thought it was the actual fact that Luke died. I thought it was more about how he died that was the problem for people i think it's probably a bit of both and i think it probably depends which fan you speak to to be honest yeah. I, I think some of them probably would have been fine with it if say luke had taken on like this 25 atats and he'd be like mowed down by like the collective laser fire from all the atats and then like had a emotional speech to ray like as he passed on his lightsaber or something 
like maybe that sort of death would have been preferable to some people um but yeah there are definitely people out there who just did not want him to die and wanted him to be the hero of the new films which obviously was never going to happen Mm. like i I really doubt this will change anyone's minds in terms of i thought we already knew this i think it was new to me like i didn't realize it was part of um george's plan yeah it's quite funny the overall narrative that's being spun because i can't keep track of it because they've also made a point of the fact that they didn't take george's treatments or really anything from them so yeah there might be these little coincidences but um it's like clearly a new story that is yes based on the characters of george lucas but you know the the writers that they had in for the sequel trilogy get full credit so no definitely like i do really want to read those lucas treatments though especially on the basis of this next part Um, (laughs) so would you care to read out the next part kirsty yeah ray's early origins that's not the only similarity between lucas's sequel trilogy plans and the one we actually got hidalgo also reveals that lucas's trilogy would have revolved heavily around the hero's journey of a young force sensitive woman lucas originally wrote her as a 14 year old girl named taryn with later treatments changing the name to Thea or Winky. <laughs> Hidalgo even hints Lucas's sequels may have revolved around this heroine seeking out a missing, dilu- disillusioned Luke Skywalker, with Lucas apparently drawing comparisons to Captain Willard's hunt for Colonel Kurtz in Apocalypse Now, a film Lucas was once attached to direct as it happens. So the main takeaway here is the name Winky. Oh my god, I just wish Ray had been called Winky. That would have changed the whole vibe of the sequel trilogy. <laughs> In my mind, Winky is the protagonist of his version that he wrote about the microbiotic world. (laughs) (laughs) I want that story. I just wonder what Winky would have looked like. I feel like she wouldn't have even been human, to be honest, based on the name Winky. Well, it's the name of that female house elf in Harry Potter. She's called Winky, so (laughs) that's what I'm thinking about. Yeah, and I, I just, my mind, because obviously the Raylo comes into it, and my mind just goes to like ship names with like Winky involved, and I guess you'd have Winklow, which just, just so stupid. Or Kylie. Kylie! <laughs> I feel Kylie would just create a tagging nightmare. Can you imagine searching on Tumblr for Kylie? Well, I don't think his name, obviously, in the Lucas treatments, it wouldn't have been, he wouldn't have been the son of. Han and Leia, or we also had the character of Skylar, who was originally going to be the hero son of Han and Leia, and then there was the Jedi killer who wasn't related, and then they kind of mushed them together. It's all very confusing. I guess you'd have, like, Wink Sky or something, which just sounds horrible. Nothing goes with Winky. Yeah. And, like, you have his power too, Winky. I don't know if Lucas would have gone in that direction either, (laughs) but (laughs) we'll never know. They scrapped it all. Yeah, I'm just envisaging, like, the sequel trilogy, everything is the same, but just someone redubs Winky for every single instance of Rey. I think that would be hilarious. What was her name? Because didn't they decide it during production of The Force Awakens? What was it? It was Kira. Oh, it was Kira. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think they started filming and she was Kira still, but then they decided to change it to Rey at the last minute. I like Kira. Yeah, I like Kira too. It's kind of real worldy, but yeah, it's a pretty name yeah. and it's not stupid like Winky. Winky just makes me think of the Teletubbies. <laughs> Tinky Winky. Yes. La, la, la. It's not good. Somehow I doubt. I mean, if she was a fourteen-year-old uh, again, 
we don't even know because there could have been like huge time jumps in his trilogy too so yeah. maybe she was 14 in the first one but could have been 10 years later for episode 8 Who yeah knows? george lucas loves his child protagonists <laughs> um okay cool and then this is a very old school fact i feel like i was vaguely aware of this but i'd kind of forgotten so could you read out the last one kirsty lando was almost a clone Screenwriter Lee Brackett featured a very unusual backstory for Lando Calrissian in her first draft of The Empire Strikes Back. As Hidalgo reveals, the draft features Lando introducing himself as a clone and a member of the Ashadi family. Apparently, Lando's great-grandfather was so vain, he created many perfect duplicates of himself, rather than start a family the old-fashioned way. And I must say, I really love that idea as a concept. And I feel that actually came back a bit in the prequels, because that's almost what Jango Fett does with Boba. You yeah, know, you know he obviously just has clones of himself instead of, you know, actually finding someone that he falls in love with and having a child with them. Um, but yeah, like I like this. I would have been cool with this as Lando's backstory. I love the Lando we got, obviously, but yeah, it's just nice because in the film as it's finished, we don't really get much backstory to Lando beyond his history with Han Solo. So mm. yeah, this stuff's quite cool to me. I wonder how you introduce yourself as a clone. <laughs> and on an unrelated note. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like that's probably why this sort of thing was just completely dropped. Obviously, the final script bears very little resemblance to Lee Brackett's. Yeah, it would just make for a very awkward introduction. Hello, I'm Lando. <laughs> I'm a clone. My great-grandfather decided he couldn't be bothered to get married, so he decided to clone himself. And <laughs> uh, Yeah, does not make sense. I guess if he had like a big family portrait on the wall and Leia was like, huh, what's that about? <laughs> Can you imagine? And there's like 15 people in it and they're all like completely identical. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, I would love that. That'd be a nice piece of merch to own. Um, yeah, and just as a quick acknowledgement, all of those summaries of what's in the book came from IGN. So thank you very much to IGN for doing my job for me. <laughs> um, cool. And then finally, before we get to The Mandalorian, um, we have an excerpt from one of the stories being released for From a Certain Point of View, The Empire Strikes Back. Um, the story in question is A Good Kiss by C.B. Lee. And yeah, I think we both quite liked this one, didn't we, Kirsty? Yeah, this is the one I'd been looking forward to most, so it was a nice surprise to see a little tidbit from it. Um, yeah, it's just, it's very cute. It's wonderful queer representation, which I'm always down for. And as I expected, <laughs> the character is, he's called Chase. He is just as annoyed at uh, Captain Solo and Princess Leia Organa as I thought he'd be. Because it's like, oh, you pretty important people. And there's just us down here doing all the hard work. Um, yeah, it, it works well. Like, I like that moment in the movie. So it, I think it was a really good choice. Yeah, they've been doing a lot of promo for this book recently and I feel like of all the promo I've seen so far, this has been the most effective and actually making me want to read it. Um, because yeah, like I like stories about the little guy, you know, the person on the sidelines who's sort of like brushing against like the big events and the important characters. Because yeah, they're big, important, dramatic events in a film. But in the context of the real world in strong air quotes just to be clear of star wars they would just be like very annoying and they'd seem very self-absorbed and distracted from what really matters so yeah i think chase is very righteous anger towards them yeah so i'm looking forward to reading 
that and other stories from there. I mean, there's some really interesting concepts that they're they're floating around. So yeah, absolutely. I'll just quickly read a little bit of Chase's inner dialogue to give people a sense for how he's feeling. Chase is so tired of people like Solo. You know who's never been kissed? Chase Wilsaw. That's who. He could certainly use a good kiss. It offends him that Captain Solo and Princess Leia are just arguing about it, the way they've been dancing around each other since they've arrived on Hoth, clearly pretending to hate each other. Don't attractive people have anything better to do than taunt everyone else on the base with their unresolved tension? Yeah, this is great. And... Like, I'm sorry for the Raylo side. I feel like I make everything about Raylo. But I love to think that I don't know how long it will take, but at some point we're bound to get like an anthology of stories from a certain point of view, the rise of Skywalker. And I know that fills some people's dread, but I'm sure it will happen in a few decades or whatever. Um, and I like to think that one day we'll get a story about one of those stormtroopers who is in that enormous hangar when Rey and Kylo were just like circling each other and having this very intense conversation with dozens and dozens of stormtroopers around them and just how bizarre that must have been to witness as like a non-interested party. So yeah, I I want the inner dialogue of one of the observers to that encounter. That'd be great. That's very optimistic of you. I might need to write it myself because you're right, it might never happen. But I would want to read it, even if I'm the only one. (laughs) Okay, cool. So let's move into our discussion of The Mandalorian Season 2. Just before we get into the discussion of the episode, I really wanted to direct people to a GoFundMe that's been set up um, for trans rights or human rights. This is the way. Um, and it's raising money for the Transgender Law Centre. This is obviously being arranged in response to the transphobic comments put out by Gina Carano, who unfortunately is a member of the main cast of The Mandalorian. She has yet to appear in season two, but she definitely will be popping up sooner or later. Um, and yeah, it's just a really great cause to direct your attention and money to if you have any funds going free. Um, so yeah, we'd definitely advise people to check that out and we will make sure to include a link to that fundraiser in the notes. Um, yeah, do you have anything you want to say, Kirsty? I think it's the Geeky Waffle Network that put that together. So thank you to everyone over there. Um, we've both contributed and we'll retweet it again um, when this episode comes out and maybe we can put it in the show notes. Yeah, no, 100%. But just, yeah kind of following on from that we totally understand if people are choosing to not watch this season of the mandalorian if they find gina's comments too upsetting i do find them hugely upsetting and i'm also Mm. really disappointed in lucasfilm for not saying anything against them publicly yeah um because that would have gone a long way to make gender diverse fans and trans fans feel included and welcome because those kind of comments and how a lot of people in parts of the fandom that we don't associate with understandably responded to those with some level of happiness that someone in a position like hers was talking this way um and even after pedro pascal had tried to educate her on the situation it continued to escalate and it was just really hurtful and angering um on so many levels yeah like i i must say like every time that like i've seen a piece of promo where gina's in it like, it, I, I just can't think of anything else, really, when I see her, you know. And I, I guess I was never, like, super attached to her character to begin with. 
And now I see the character even less. You know, I just see those hateful, ignorant comments when I see her. Um, and yeah, I, I do wonder how it's going to be to actually get through an episode when she features. Um, but yeah, I won't know that till we get there. Um, and all I can say is I just hope that she has a small part. And I'm at the very least glad that her nastiness and ignorance have inspired something as good as this fundraiser, which will hopefully make a tangible difference in some people's lives. Separating the art from the artist is always a complex, very personal thing, isn't it? Mm, so exactly. it's kind of kind of be down to each one of us how we feel about it. And we had a conversation after um, her comments came to light. We were like, do we want to cover this? Do we even want to watch it? Because I'd even been thinking about like getting rid of my Disney Plus because I, I don't watch anything else on it besides The Mandalorian. Sure. So, um, but yeah, we're going to give it a go and totally respect people who feel differently and have decided this isn't for them and you know we trust that you'll you'll skip reaction episodes about it and and ho hopefully come back when we're ready to discuss other things yeah um but we totally understand and that's a, a very personal individual decision definitely um to be clear we will still be covering non-mandalorian stuff as and when it occurs but yeah while the mandalorian is on i expect the main focus of most of our episodes will be the new Mandalorian. So, yeah, just to forewarn people about what to expect. Yeah. And I, I just want to point out as well that while Lucasfilm as a company haven't made a public statement, I've noticed that um, employees of Lucasfilm have been contributing to that GoFundMe mm. and, and making little comments on Twitter about how they're not happy with Gina's comments. Yeah. So, you know, we kind of also kind of need to remember that there are people at Lucasfilm, including genderqueer people, um, who will not have been happy with Gina's comments and will have been hurt by them just as we have been. Um, so, and, and to think about all the people who make The Mandalorian aside from Gina. Yeah. You know, she's a part of it, but she's not it. So, yeah. No, exactly. It's so like Pedro Pascal in particular is very vocal in support of trans rights. Um, and yeah, I think one of the most upsetting and distressing aspects of Gina's response is that she actually spoke to Pedro to try and understand why people were saying what they were saying to her and why they were trying to educate her in various areas and she just doubled down basically and it didn't seem to make any yeah. difference um so yeah there are still like plenty of really good kind well-intentioned people who are genuinely embracing of all communities and people um like pedro and like a lot of the people behind the scenes um so yeah like I, I want to still keep going for their work you know because and there is a lot i enjoy about the show in general but yeah like i'll have a better understanding of how i feel about gina's involvement when i actually get to an episode that she is in basically yeah i mean as i was doing my rewatch i was i guess i was kind of focusing on cara Dune a bit more because of the things that had happened mm. and I'm, i have quite complicated feelings about that character because one, I'll be frank, I don't think that Gina's actually a very good actress. Mm. Um, but the character herself has promise, I think. You know, she has an interesting backstory of being that shock trooper, being from older on. Um, she has quite a dry, wry sense of humour. Um, and now, and also, you know, I was headcanoning head her as queer. Yeah. You know, so it was, it's kind of, <laughs> this is obviously so low on the priority list compared to her actresses real life statements and yeah i appreciate again i'm saying everyone's gonna feel differently but i am not gonna let 
some bigot ruin this thing that I enjoy for me. Yeah. Uh, it just won't. So, um, you know, I'm I'm still going to try and enjoy that character and whatever storylines she crops up in throughout the season. Yeah. But I appreciate that might be hard <laughs> when it comes down to it. Yeah. No, and I think that's a really good approach to it. Okay, his pod segue from that. But um, yeah, I think we should get down to talking about the episode. Um, so obviously our discussion this time is going to be about Chapter 9, The Marshal, which is the first episode of Season 2 of The Mandalorian. Um, and I'm sure this is obvious to everyone, but just to restate it, this is going to be a full-on spoiler discussion of the episode. So please stop here if you have not yet seen the episode. Go away and watch it and then come back. <laughs> um, because if you do not do that, the discussion will not make sense. Um so yeah, welcome back if you did go away after I said that. Um, and yeah, I'll start with you, Kirsty. What are your general feelings about this episode? I went on a bit of a journey with it because, as I said, I did a rewatch of the, the final few episodes. Actually, I started with chapter five, so I suppose I watched half the season um, that night before it, it came on. And I surprised myself by getting really hyped to watch it as soon as it was available. Because <laughs> I'd been like kind of, and because of like the, as we said, a little of a lackluster press tour, understandably because of the pandemic. But um, I was like, yes, yeah, Star Wars is back, baby. <laughs> um, and I needed that this week. Uh, I needed some comfort TV and it was just really fun to watch. Um, so, I, yeah, I really enjoyed myself with it. And then on um, secondary watch, I was, I don't know, I, I guess I was like paying more attention to different things as you do in a rewatch. And I tell you what didn't help me was that I just started watching again the um, the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance series on Netflix, and you know I'm sure some people listening have watched that show and loved it as we did, and other people haven't. And I would recommend watching it just in general if you're interested in fantasy. Um, it's just such a wonderful show. And as I was watching it, I was like, God, I would love to have something like this for Star Wars one day. Oh God! So. Yeah. Yeah, so here I'm at. I'm at the place where I'm like enjoying the Mandalorian for what it is. I'm having lots of fun with it, but I'm always going to hope for more from Star Wars TV. And I'm just kind of aware that we're at the beginning. You know, this is the beginning of television in the Star Wars universe. So who knows where it's going to go? Um, and I will enjoy it for what it is. But I, I just have hope for the future that I'll get something that feels a bit more in line with um what i would love to see because yeah. i'm i'm just aware that i am not the target audience for the mandalorian and that's fine yeah you know? no i think that's all really fair and while you were talking i was actually thinking about what sort of dark crystal style star wars show could they do and what they could do is if you know at the end of the mandalorian they find like a yoda civilization where it's all yoda species and say they have like a really sophisticated society and culture you know, just do like a Dark Crystal style series about them, like where it's all puppets and they like have all these different factions and the Yoda species and stuff. Oh, it'd be so cool. Yeah. And what got me thinking about it again was the name Winky for Ray. I was like, that could be the name of a girlfly. Yeah, <laughs> you know? no, that's um, so true. So do a full on puppet series. I know we're getting off track here and that's my fault, but I'm, I'm just thinking about the potential for amazing Star Wars television. And I, there are lots of fans who think The Mandalorian is amazing. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's wonderful. I'm very happy for people who are super obsessed with this show. Um, for me, it's fine. Yeah. I'm enjoying it. But I just, yeah, there are things out there that I love so much more. And 
um there's there's so much wonderful tv you know we are like in a golden age i think for tv to be honest there's just so much content I'm, i'm kind of asking myself like would i be watching this if it wasn't star wars or if it wasn't for the cuteness of baby yoda mm. again not because it's bad but because there's so much other great stuff and i feel like it's somewhat inaccessible to people who aren't already big star wars fans like i feel like a lot of the terminology and the references it would just leave people completely cold if they weren't very immersed in the universe already obviously that's not a huge problem because there's millions upon millions of people who already love star wars and it's for those people but yeah, like I definitely don't find myself recommending The Mandalorian to, to regular people in my life. Yeah, no, I, no, I understand. Like, I don't think I've recommended it to anyone. I, I've I've seen lots of people sharing Baby Yoda memes. Yeah, <laughs> that's like a huge thing. But and then I like I'll ask people, oh, have you watched Mandalorian? And they're like, no, I just I think that character looks cute. So, um, and a lot of people don't have Disney Plus, so they can't watch it. But. Yeah, no, it's quite funny. All that, that Baby Yoda stuff has been shared almost completely out of context. Not that you need much context, really, because in the sh- context of the show, it's just, look at this cute little thing that must be protected. I think my general review of the first episode, so I really enjoyed it. It was very fun and entertaining. And it really is extraordinary what they do in terms of the special effects. You know, it looks equal to anything I've seen in movies. Yeah, the production values and stuff. Yeah, like it looks astonishingly good. And I think George Lucas must be glowing with pride when he watches it because I know they've innovated all sorts of new technologies to make it possible to do these special effects for a TV show. Um, and all of that's inc- incredible and amazing. Um, but I think just generally it felt like more of the same. You know, it was sort of like an adventure of the week plot. You know, there wasn't anything hugely revelatory happening. Like, unless you count the final shot, which we'll talk about in due course. Yeah, like, it was just pleasant, you know? And I had a really great time watching it. And I loved Star Wars being back, you know? I just got the warm fuzzies watching Star Wars again, like I said, at the start of the episode. Um, But yeah, like, I just really need there to be some forward momentum and, like, a clear sense of the direction of the show and what the grand purpose of it all is, you know? Because I think there's a real risk if they keep on going as they're going, of the purpose being, oh, we just want to revisit cool things that people remember from the original trilogy, you know, because much like in season one, there's all these like callbacks to things that we saw in the original films. Oh, and the prequels now. Yeah, and the prequels. <laughs> and don't be wrong, I love seeing Banthas. Banthas are fantastic. I love Banthas. They're brushing the Banthas' teeth. <laughs> that was cute. <laughs> Kirsty, I've got so much to say about the Banthas. I'm trying to like hold it all okay. in because there's a lot of Banthas love in my heart. I just need there to be more, basically. And I need um, the bloody Mandalorian to take his helmet off again. Seeing so much of Timothy Oliphant's face, like, it just made me, like, long to see Pedro's lovely human face again. Because we obviously see the mask taken off at the end of season one. And I was really hoping that that would sort of be a watershed moment. Obviously, I knew he'd still wear the helmet a lot. But, you know, when we had that breakthrough in terms of seeing his humanity beneath the mask... I wanted that to become more of a regular thing. So I hope we do see mm. more of him in season two. It's tricky, isn't it? Because I feel like that's kind of a central part of the show and maybe the themes that they're trying to explore in terms of like the identity and you know covering yourself up and isolating yourself as he does in his actual daily experience. But he's starting to connect with characters. And that's that's kind of what I do feel like it's missing as well and why I 
I'm, I'm enjoying it, but I'm not hugely emotionally connecting to it, is that even if you have these other characters who are unmasked, um, like Cobb Vamp or Cara Dune or Grief Karga, um, if he's masked, there's still not this, like, I don't know. They did it really well with a mirror, actually, but it was towards the understanding that she still wanted to take the mask off and that wasn't going to happen. He wasn't prepared for that at that moment. Yeah, where all, where is all of that going? Like, what's the end goal for this character? Is it that he takes it off and, like, kind of joins regular society again? Or is he destined to be the forever lone wanderer? And, you know, if he successfully finds Baby Yoda's clan, whatever you call them, the, the rest of the Yodas or the rest of the Jedi. The Yodai. Whoever it is. <laughs> Sorry. Um, what becomes of him then? Yeah. Because, you know, you said, like, this episode kind of felt like more of the same in terms of them obviously revisiting the slaying of the dragon trope and you know we'll get into all of that is he kind of doomed to repeat this cycle forever until he makes a different choice yeah um because i love seeing these creatures and they do such an amazing job with the effects as you say but like what's what's the overall goal of that um the repetition of that cycle and i kind of thought and maybe you know they'll explore this in further episodes as they did with the mud horn he felt regret over that killing. Yeah. Um, doesn't appear to this time. And I'm just kind of wondering what the difference will be. Yeah. And I think that's like where my worry is, you know, so I need there to be like a sense of progression to the character. Um, and especially I want to see more breaking away from this like rigid adherence to the Mandalorian code. And like this prioritization of like, the armor, for example, because he's obviously incensed when he realized that Cobb Vamp isn't Mandalorian, but he owns the Mandalorian's armor. That clearly mm. makes him angry, and the reason that he agrees to kill the crate dragon is because it means Cobb Vamp will give him the armor back, essentially. I think I disliked that because that was sort of framed as the right course of action. It was framed as like justice and the right thing to do. But then he built that human connection over it. So maybe he actually felt quite differently by the end of it. Yeah, and I, f I think that's what I struggle with because I feel like that's a potential interpretation, but I feel like the show itself isn't committing to anything, you know, in mm. terms of what it wants us to take away from the depictions of these things. Like at the beginning, for example, sorry, I know I'm hopping all over the place, but um, he's speaking to an informant to get information about where Mandalorians have been seen. Gore Koresh is the character's name. And he's obviously a bad guy. He tries to ambush the Mandalorian. And there's a scene where the Mandalorian basically strings him up on a lamppost and then leaves Gore Koresh to be devoured by wolves. I know, it's quite shocking, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And it was very cold and very like callous, you know. There wasn't like any mercy. Yeah, but doesn't want to kill Cobb Vamp. <laughs> Timothy Oliphant is too pretty. He's not a cyclops. Yeah, no, exactly. He looks nice. <laughs> Yeah, and again, I didn't like that, so I felt like that was framed as this moment of like cool badassery, and I was like, I don't think that's particularly good or heroic, to be honest. Like, and I'm just not sure my feelings about the character's behaviour are lining up with how the showmakers feel about it, you know, and how they want it to be perceived. So I guess it's just a problem with this perhaps ambivalence I'm sensing from the show itself in terms of it doesn't hmm. want to commit too strongly to the morality of the character in either direction. I think, yeah, if, if I'm being generous, I'll kind of interpret that as the character himself is still feeling this push and pull in terms of which direction he wants to go. And 
what he's willing to do to protect the child. Um, and maybe in some situations that's consistent and others it's not. And he's like kind of thinking on his feet and maybe makes mistakes. Cause there's a bit later on where he's like, take care of the child and then runs off to do something <laughs> reckless and it works out. But it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> you just met these people. Yeah. I need to see they that don't even know the goal. Him, at least once this season where he like trusts baby Yoda with some new caregivers and they basically kidnap him. Um, mm. I need to see that sort of story. So he learns his lesson and stops doing that. Like, it's fine with giving Baby Yoda to Pelly because obviously she's proven herself as an ally at this point. Um, but yeah, most people, they do not seem legit to me. Like, you've got to be very careful about your babysitters and stalls. Yeah. But again, I'm like, are we reading too much into it? Should we just kind of enjoy it on a surface level? Because, you know, it's, it's like the they're exploring some pretty on the nose symbolism and you know tropes that we recognize throughout well, the western genre but also with the slaying of the dragon which is popular in star wars anyway they you know there's almost this like medieval chivalry thing going on yeah um just uh, i'm i'm in two minds i'm like i'm just should i just enjoy it on that level but i'm also like well we have to talk about stuff on the podcast i think it must just be how my mind is wired to be honest you know my mind is wired to like interrogate things very deeply and to like ask a dozen different questions about something and this extends beyond star wars it's a problem i have with a lot of media um and yeah i probably need to get my brain to quiet down sometimes yeah i just don't know how many answers we're gonna get pulling at these various threads yeah um and also you know it's just like we have to wait and see to an extent because this is only the first episode yeah exactly is Boba Fett going to get a redemption arc now? <laughs> what is happening? Yeah. Is he like atoning, wandering in the desert? What? What is going on? Yeah. Is he going to still turn out to be the villain? Because I think a lot of people, I've seen people theorizing that he's the new antagonist and Moff Gideon is being dropped, but I don't buy that. Yeah, that seems a bit unlikely to me, <laughs> to put it mildly. Um, but yeah, no, I agree. There's lots of questions about Boba Fett and what the reintroduction of that character means. Um, I was thinking we should attempt vaguely to go through this thing in chronological okay. order so we can make the yeah. most of our wild unrestrained notes <laughs> that we prepared while watching the episode yeah so obviously we start out in the mando and the child they're walking through some graffiti covered streets and they end up in this sort of like underground boxing match it's not boxing they're, they're in a ring and they're using axes <laughs> it's <really> funny <laughs> you're right yeah yeah so like, sorry i don't know why i found that so amusing yeah it's like what do i even call it like an axing match <laughs> it's like i don't know the terminology there like a brawl maybe um but yeah my first observation is that i love the vibe of those streets and i love the graffiti because mm. i'm not sure that's something i remember seeing before that it might have been like on the lower levels of Cors- coruscant in attack the clones but it's been a long time since I watched it. So I associate it with Sabine, and I'm sure a lot of fans do. Oh, um, yeah, of course. Yeah, I've, I've never watched Rebels. I'm a bad fan. <laughs> <laughs> You're not a bad fan. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think so. People were kind of theorizing whether she would show up or not, but I, she's obviously not the only artist in the Star Wars galaxy. So, yeah, it was just nice to kind of get a different look at at the world right yeah. is it clear what um planet they're on at that point it's a good question it's probably in the wikipedia description of the episode <laughs> right it's not in the episode yeah though, I, I, I don't think it's it. stated outright um and yeah like i think it's just him following like a daisy chain of 
like contacts basically so i don't think it's a particularly important planet um yeah. but yeah it's just a nice urban vibe i guess which is unusual for the show so we don't normally get that yeah but i think you're right in that it's almost like the opening scene is intended to be quite brutal and shocking and presumably to kind of show us where the mandalorian's at like they've been traveling for a while an undefined amount of time but um yeah that this is kind of his mental state that he's willing to do anything and he you know as soon as he says oh you won't die by my hands i'm like okay well he's gonna do something else to ensure that he's dead indirectly (laughs) yeah no i was like oh no this man's a goner isn't he (laughs) yeah but i'm like well did he deserve it i don't know maybe in the mandalorian's eyes he was gonna take his armor you know that's a pretty serious thing clearly like you know this episode seriously exploring that and what that means to the mandalorian and 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 what it means to see someone else wearing it yeah no it's like that was one of my main thoughts i think about this episode like the significance of wearing the armor to the mandalorians and i'm kind of torn about that because i appreciate the idea that it's this very ritualistic militaristic culture and that is like a critical part of how that culture identifies and operates. You know, like obviously the Mandalorians, they are one with that armor. That's like fundamental to their identities. But I think that's also part of why I've never really attached to the Mandalorian culture in Star Wars in general. Because to me, it's this whole idea of being attached to things more than people, more than characters you know and i totally understand the in-world logic for why the mandalorians are so devoted to their armor and what means so much to them but i think from an out of universe perspective it doesn't speak to me too strongly if that makes sense yeah and coming back to you know how much you can enjoy this show in isolation without having seen any of the other star wars things that explore mandalorians um aside from like being aware of boba fett as a thing and that's kind of what you recognize from Din Djarin's appearance um it kind of like takes for granted that that stuff is explored elsewhere so that they, yes he has a backstory in terms of the Mandalorian history but if you don't actually know what that is it's kind of just um I don't know a cliff notes version I guess the show itself hasn't explored that too much aside from those flashbacks that we were talking about and him and the armorer being <laughs> they're making vague allusions to things in their history but do you know what I mean? I'm yeah. Like, is there going to be a point where all of that stuff comes to light or is it just kind of meant to be there implicitly? Yeah. So I feel like right now it's kind of assuming that you can follow the action without being aware of all that stuff. And then it throws mm. in references to past events in Mandalorian history precisely for the minority of fans who will know what they're talking about. They're throwing in things that are new, actually, because like, I was watching the finale again and Moff Gideon throws out something like the Night of Tears or and that's not something that's ever been mentioned in Star Wars canon Mm. because it didn't sound familiar to me and I looked it up and it's not it's a new thing for the show so I'm like are they going to come back to that at some point that obviously means something to the Mandalorian himself but not to the audience yeah I'm just interested to see um what's going to happen next I guess (laughs) because um with him being like okay i need to find more mandalorians and then he's going to find two people who aren't mandalorians cobb vamp and boba fett Mm. if presumably if if in the next episode he does come face to face with boba fett we don't actually know but it's kind of what's teased there yeah um so he's he's looking for mandalorians and he's only finding people who wore the armor but aren't really um what does that mean for him is he gonna keep going and 
be like, okay, I'm actually going <laughs> to really attempt to find some real Mandalorians? Or is this just going to take him off on a completely different direction? And he'll he'll find Baby Yoda's way back to the other Yodas indirectly um, yeah. in a way that he didn't really envision. And it would be interested if it makes him like question the whole concept of the Mandalorian identity, like just full stop. You know, mm. like if there's a character like Boba Fett who was so firmly associated with that armor, but wasn't actually a Mandalorian. I believe that is something that's explored in the Clone Wars, the idea of appropriation and the Mandalorians not being completely thrilled by what Boba Fett's doing. Well, this is what I was hoping for when we heard that Tamara was coming back. I'm like, are they going to explore these themes of appropriation and um, identity and... Um, I don't know. I just, it, it remains to be seen, but this episode is promising in that respect because you get that first with Cobb Vanth. Yeah. Um, I mean, he just looks so... You know, he he doesn't look like the Mandalorian in that armor, and that is very much intentional. He looks like he's wearing a costume over his regular clothes. <laughs> yeah, he looks very dorky, which I really appreciate. <laughs> um, yeah, so obviously the tip-off from Gore Koresh sends the Mandalorian to Tatooine again. Woo! Sorry, <laughs> I'm full of salt this episode. I don't. Know I why. don't mind Tatooine. Yeah, I don't mind it if it's being used in in ways that I feel make sense for the characters and it has that yeah appropriate atmosphere. No, exactly. And I was, I think, I was skeptical at first when he first went back and we saw um Amy Sedaris's character again, Peli Motto. Yeah, like I was relieved when they were actually sent to a new location on Tatooine because that made it feel a little bit less gratuitous to me. So it was mm. interesting to see a new settlement because obviously in this episode we see Moz Pelgo, which is a mining settlement and it's an absolute shithole, which <laughs> I appreciated. It, it honestly made Moz Eisley look like the shining centre of the universe, like which <laughs> I never thought would happen. But Yeah, they were obviously going full in on the Western vibes of him rolling into town and everyone standing on their porches staring <laughs> at him. Yeah, it was like Deliverance or something, wasn't it? It's like, wow, they're going to attack him. <laughs> and yeah, what did you think about the Western influence, Kirsty? As you say, it was pretty on the nose. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very stylish. They they do it well. Um, it's not my favourite element of Star Wars, um, which I think is why, I don't know, The Mandalorian is probably appealing to other people more than me as a, as a series in general, because it, it really goes full in on that. Whereas for me, um, my favourite parts of Star Wars are like epic romance and, and the magic of the Force. And I, I assume that they're going to get back to that at some point with Baby Yoda yep. and, and, and what's, what's up with him. But um, yeah, it's it's fun. I think what concerns me sometimes is that it is almost into like a parody territory. Yeah. Um, and I think t- bringing Timothy Oliphant in as as great as he is at that kind of emphasised that for me because um, I don't know, like even bringing his Deadwood co-star in as the bartender, it was like, okay, that's a little much. <laughs> and they're obviously having fun with it. You know, John Favreau is kind of playing with his action figures. But um, I don't know. I, I think we feel quite differently about the Marshal as a character within Star Wars. I think you liked him a lot more than I did. Yeah. I liked Timothy Oliphant. <laughs> I think he was perfect in the role. I'm just not sure about that role for Star Wars. Like, I don't know. Um, yeah, I think maybe what John Favreau loves about Star Wars is very different from what I love about Star Wars. Yeah. No, like... I think I appreciated Timothy Oliphant in this episode and his character of the Marshal um, just because they provided a human face to things. 
you know and mm. Tim Fiolafont he's an actor I haven't seen in much else but obviously he's very well established and he's just talented you know he has that charisma he has that charm that you'd expect in a well-established character with a good long career behind him and yeah I loved seeing that in this environment where it is all these characters and masks and monster makeup basically you know because you don't often just get the unvarnished human face in the Mandalorian and yeah I just liked it and I felt that he and the Mandalorian had a nice vibe together I enjoyed their rapport and yeah like the charm it just gave me something to grip onto I think for much of the episode yeah no I agree it was very enjoyable and he is very charismatic and had nice hair (laughs) which felt very un-Star Wars but it's nice yeah it was also quite funny because he looked so put together and so clean compared to everyone else in the town I know they made some attempts to like rough him up and put a little dirt on his face but it was very much like movie magic style roughing up you know like and it did nothing to affect his devastating handsomeness so yeah it was quite amusing to me not sure how I feel about the name Cobb Vanth which I know that they didn't coin for this show he was in the Aftermath books but what kind of a name is Cobb (laughs) we're gonna get Bacon Butty next I feel like Cobb Vamp is definitely never going to be one of those top tier Star names. I don't want to be in, at some point in the future and we get Star episode 15 and the main character is called Cobb in honour of Cobb Vamp. That would be a very bad look. <laughs> but yeah, I just I just loved the contrast between how he looked in the armour versus how the Mandalorian looks in his oh, armour. Yeah. Like it was clear it didn't belong to him, it wasn't made for him. Um, he probably didn't know how to use a lot of it, although he did use the the little thing that comes down. What's that called? To blow something up? The viewfinder or something? Yeah. Yeah. That was very Iron Man, <laughs> which makes sense for Favreau. Yeah. And like, correct me if I'm wrong, Kirsty, but am I right to think that a lot of those gadgets, Boba Fett didn't have them in the original trilogy? I don't remember him being able to find missiles like that, especially not that I think powerfully. he has it. He just never uses it. So we don't, we haven't seen it before. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I feel like seeing those moments, you know, where um Cobb blows up the um mining guild people, the like villains who are introduced in his flashback. I felt like that was very much, as you've said, John Favreau playing with his toys, because like with Boba Fett, he is one of those characters who's been massively inflated in fans' imaginations. And obviously he's given more depth and backstory in the prequels. So it's not like there isn't any. But like in the actual films, he's a very minor character. And I feel like he's elevated to this role of like epic importance in fans' imaginations that doesn't correspond with the priority he's given in the films themselves. And I felt like the version of Boba Fett's armor that we saw in this episode, it was all about appealing to that in a fan you know John Favreau is like a 10 year old playing with his mail mail order Boba Fett figure than like the real character kind of but I know I sound salty and I think again this goes back to me not feeling like the main audience for the show like when I see like the gratuitous like worship of the iconography of Boba Fett I feel like yeah it's cool but not really speaking to me right now to be honest yeah but then don't you think they're doing that to build up the whole idea of Boba Fett having been stripped of that and who he really is now under the armour I'd love that to be I feel like case. that's what that last shot kind of suggests that we're going to see Boba as who he really is and and I, I'm, I'm writing fanfic now 
but <laughs> maybe it. that speaks to the success of the episode that it's like okay so who is boba fett and i think i s- said this again when we first heard about tomorrow coming back i'm like who is he going to be without the armor because we knew that Cobb vanford got it from the aftermath books obviously it's conveyed differently as to how he comes across it but i'm just going to kind of put that down to Cobb like embellishing it to impress the mandalorian <laughs> yes um but yeah i i just want to know who who boba fett actually is when he's not bounty hunting um how does he feel about the fact that his brothers in air quotes were used as the army for this destructive and pointless nonsensical war um are we gonna get any of that or is it is it just gonna be kind of surface level so Again, it remains to be seen, but I think that pieces are there, and I think that will tie in to the things that they were kind of exploring in this episode. Um, however surface level, because as you say, sometimes it's consistent and others it's, it's not. It's kind of back to him being the stoic badass. So, Yeah. <laughs> but I think there has to be a point to bringing Boba Fett back stripped of the armor. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, that's... Is that Boba Fett? Is Boba Fett the name and the armor and nothing else and is this person going to be someone else entirely has he gone undergone this transformation out there in the desert by himself what are his beliefs does he care about anything does he have friends did he find fennec shand out there in the desert and is she alive like what what is happening so maybe the episode has been a success because i'm asking all of these questions now I honestly hadn't thought of any of that and you've all oh. immediately made it much more interesting for me. So thank you. I just, you know, we were both ambivalent about Boba, but it's because it's all in the execution. So, you know, yeah, you can bring him back and it can just be mindless fan service and a greatest hits thing. Or it can be, you know, kind of more in line with what Ryan Johnson did with The Last Jedi, where you kind of challenge the perceptions of these heroic, iconic characters that have been built over the decades in fans' minds. So we'll see. Yeah, no, definitely. And you've made me really look forward to seeing what they do with Boba Fett now. So the show has <laughs> well, a lot to live up to, Kirsty. It's the thing, because I'm constantly building my expectations up and then telling myself, don't do it. <laughs> you need to learn your lesson. Don't do it, you get burned. <laughs> you get burned. But this was a promising start, you know, yeah. because as I said, they were exploring those those themes with, with the armor and who gets to wear it and what does it mean when you're wearing it? And is that a sign of strength or is it actually a sign of weakness and you're kind of using it as a crutch and an excuse to isolate yourself from the world? Because I think Din Djarin probably is doing that on some level, right? Yeah. Like he, you could see in chapter four, he was tempted to stay there with Amira and, um, and Kara was even talking about it, like, it would be so easy for you to settle down with this widow and raise your child here and be happy, but he doesn't let himself do that. So is he ever going to? Yeah, I really hope so, one day. <laughs> like, if it doesn't, like, get dragged out for 10 seasons, you know, like, that that would be a really nice way to, like, tie it all up at the end, you know, like, have him leave Baby Yoda wherever, whether it's with Yoda species or whether it's like with Luke's training academy and we see baby Baron. <laughs> <And then laughs> anyway, like... sorry, I've completely got us off track here with the chronological. No, sorry. no, it's fine, don't worry. I don't have much on like the big epic like attempt to kill the crate dragon, to be honest. So. Well, yeah, I mean, kind of just what I was saying earlier with where's the sympathy for the monster? Yeah. I was... I'd almost taken it for granted when I was like, oh, okay, so it's that kind of plot. They're going to take down the monster and save the village. 
Um, but there was not a single time where he expressed sympathy or like doubt over what they were doing. Yeah. Um, which it surprised me. Um, you know, I I was kind of hoping for something on a level of Ray with Forces of Destiny or the Rise of Skywalker where actually the monster deserves some compassion, especially after what happened with the Mudhorn. Yeah, no, definitely. It's like that poor crate dragon. It was just minding its own business in its natural habitat, eating a few bamfers, eating a few sand people. And they've kind of already told this story with the Myths and Fables book. Mm. Like that's kind of immediately what came to mind. That um, I always read that story as um, the character was Obi Wan, even if he wasn't like named. Could you briefly summarize the Myths and Fables story? Because I haven't read it, and I'm sure well, a lot it kind of, of is the same haven't... thing. The the locals are being terrorized and their animals kept keep getting eaten and stolen. But then this mystical being comes along and like and saves them all from it. Oh wow. So when I read it, I for some reason there must be some details in there that made me think it was Obi Wan, but obviously the nature of that book is they never they never name the character, so there's one that's like obviously meant to be General Grievous, but they don't tell you it is. Um so so in my mind that was Obi Wan on Tatooine. Um but maybe I'll go back and I don't know. I'll, I'll see if it's actually meant to be the Mandalorian in hindsight, or if this is just meant to be another riff on that myth. Yeah, like, given how similar it sounds, like, I do wonder if the story group maybe gave a copy of the story to Favreau, like, when he was coming up with ideas for this, the show, and he was like, oh yeah, I really like that. Yeah, or this is like a very conventional storytelling plot, right? Like, oh, they yeah. could have just been like, oh, actually, we have something similar to that. Um, would you care to check it out? But but yeah, I, I I do think it's treading water in a sense, but maybe that's by design to show that the Mandalorian is, I don't know, is he kind of self-sabotaging here with these endless side quests? Is he kind of putting off the fact that he sooner or later goodbye. he has to part with Baby Yoda? Yeah. Maybe he doesn't really want to on some level? Yeah, that might make sense. So at the moment, I do kind of question how they're going to be able to drag out this central idea of the Mandalorian having to reunite Baby Yoda with his kind. You know, like, mm. how many seasons can that last for? Hmm. Yeah, I guess it depends what they decide is the central question, because that's obviously... That's, like, Din's mission, as he understands it now. Yeah. But the other questions are, what did they want with Baby Yoda in the first place? And are we going to see more of that mystical force side of Star Wars? Because I would love that. You know, because they've kind of teased it in the times when... He has like healed people, and and now in the context of post trust Star Wars, like do we understand the Force healing power differently? Because I think I saw something this week that there was some book or something that described Force healing as a dyad ability. Yeah. But then we've seen Baby Yoda healing. Like, does he have a Force dyad of Grief Karga or someone else? And Ray healed the <laughs> snake. So does she have a dyad with the snake? <laughs> well, I think some people were trying to explain that as like, okay, it means that people w- people in the dyad have that ability. Right. And they can heal others who they don't necessarily have the dyad relationship with. Okay. But then that means that Baby Yoda has a dyad with someone. <laughs> and Palpatine was like, we haven't seen this in generations. Yeah, that's, so, that's a good point. I'm, I'm just not letting myself take any of that too seriously because I think it's a case of contracted writers <laughs> coming in and filling the gaps exactly. and making little mistakes. Yeah. I always try to think of that as books schmucks. <laughs> books schmucks. 
Um, so just quickly, Banffers. I want to talk about Oh, I Banfers. love them. Oh, they're so good. Like, I honestly, I think I might pref- like the Banffers even more than I like Timothy Oliphant. And I like Timothy Oliphant <laughs> a lot. Like, no, the Banffers and the Tuscans were absolutely my favourite part of the show. Yeah, no, definitely. Like, But I was honestly feeling quite sad Like every time a Banffer got eaten. Because there's lots of like Banffer sacrifice in this episode. And it was honestly like distressing me a bit. I was like, no, not another Banffer. <laughs> and like the best moment in the whole episode might have been when one of the sand people walks up to the crate dragon with the idea of being to sacrifice a Banffer so that the crate dragon won't eat them. And then the crate dragon comes up and like gulps up the sand person but leaves the Banffer alone. And I was like, Banffer supremacy! <laughs> yes! That was a delicious bit of dark humour. <laughs> Especially when the Mandalorian is like... They might be open to some fresh ideas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was probably the funniest moment in the whole episode. I enjoyed that. Um, and yeah, yeah, you're right about all the sand people stuff also being a highlight. Um, you sent me a really great um, like link, which was about how um, they actually used deaf actors to um, like perform the sand people's language. Um, yeah, de- and develop the language yeah. too. So it's not ASL, but it's like a you know it's it is its own language that they've developed. Um, yeah, I cannot get enough of the Mandalorian communicating with the Tuscans because that was something that I was hugely excited about in Chapter 5, that the Tuscan raiders were actually being treated as people, yep. not savages. Um, that was refreshing for Star Wars. And that it showed an evolution from his character in Chapter 2. Um, and it, they came back to that as well around the campfire here where it's actually Cobb Vanth who's like refusing to listen to them and threatening them and standing up and kind of um, getting to that point. And when the Mandalorian uses the fire that comes out of his armor to diffuse that situation, I was like, oh, that's a really cool contrast from chapter two where he uses that to threaten the Jawas and it's Quill that has to tell him stop. Um, so there's little things like that that you feel like you're kind of going around in circles, but then it, it shows how much he's actually grown since then. Um, and seeing him communicate with them effectively and 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 trying to mutually benefit the Tuscans and the villagers, that's great to see. So that's kind of what I was telling myself when I was like, well, why are they just killing this great dragon and not reflecting on what that could mean for them or if there's any other way to resolve this issue? Like, can they find the dragon another home or whatever? I was like, okay, well, I just have to make peace of it because the Tuscans are the other in this situation. Yeah. And however you feel about that and the implications there, it's about bridging that gap, which is something that Star Wars has needed since 77. So I'll take it. Yeah, I I feel like you're right. They basically dedicated all their energies to giving the Sand People humanity in this episode and like treating them as the other that have become sympathetic and intelligible through this like patience and attempts to understand them. Um, and yeah, like I feel like the crate dragon was the casualty of that attention, essentially, because yeah. it's like, yeah, we have time for the sand people, definitely not time for crate dragons. And I also liked your point about it being like a, a chain and there being this like repetition in terms of like seeing like the interactions evolve. And I liked that we see the Mandalorian teach Cobb Vamp how to communicate effectively with the Sand People. And then later on, we see Cobb Vamp teach the Town People how to communicate effectively with them as well and how to change their attitudes. Um, and yeah, I thought that was a nice moment of evolution. And 
it would be nice it would be good if we saw something later on where like we come back and maybe they're living coexisting you know like they might be trading with each other more frequently or living side by side and have arrangements um so yeah like that would be a nice evolution especially given the starting point for human hyphen sand people relations that we see in attack of the clones which is not positive let's put it that way mm-hmm. yeah yeah what do you think about all the kind of like nods to the prequels as opposed to just the original trilogy which it seemed like in in the first season oh definitely refreshing like i was pleased yeah. um because yeah i feel like they're going to exhaust the well of the original trilogy quite quickly if they insist too much on just sticking to that iconography and i feel like there's so many like cool elements and details in the prequels that they can draw upon if they're willing to go there yeah they're visually stunning like just seeing some of the designs repurpose like the the pod racer turned into the speeder that Cobb Vamp was using. That was really cool. Yeah, no, I liked that. And just seeing like the hint of a more urban environment at the start of the episode, it just made me long to go back to a place like Coruscant again. You know, mm-hmm. I'd love to see that because I know the whole idea of the Mandalorian is oh space western, but I don't know. I really want to see interaction with different kinds of environments rather than like these wasteland type ones that we're getting a lot of. And mm-hmm. I, I totally appreciate that something like Coruscant is going to be more complicated and difficult to render than a desert with mountains. Um, but I think they can do it and it would be great if they did. So, yeah, yeah. hopefully we go there. Yeah, I feel a bit hypocritical because I'm like, oh, OT nostalgia. But hey, prequel nostalgia. <laughs> <laughs> the superior brand it's... of nostalgia. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's more about just acknowledging that there's different generations to the fan base at this point. Yeah. And 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 throwing them a bone like, you know, you still see the prequels kind of bashed about in fandom and everyone's going to have their own opinion on those movies. So if you don't like them, that's totally valid, but I think it's great to see Star Wars itself kind of bringing those components in. Um and Tatooine was the perfect place to do that, right? Like that even there's this weird visual echo for me at least when he's coming into the the town and you're getting kind of the silhouettes of the villagers as they peer out and one of them I was like that kind of looks like Shmi obviously it wasn't but I think that was kind of the imagery that they were going for yeah no I agree I also noticed that um and I like seeing a few like women and children as well so I feel like there is not just the men but the women and the children yes exactly (laughs) (laughs) I see what you did there yeah like there were definite callbacks in the like imagery and it definitely gave me those like shimmy vibes and yeah hopefully at some point we'll actually see one of those female villagers have a more important role again like amira mm-hmm. so i loved amira she yeah. was definitely one of my favorite guest stars from season one yeah that that was actually something that i missed from this episode like we technically had female characters but not a lot yeah it was basically Pelly, wasn't it? And like her main function was to be like, oh, baby Yoda, he's so cute. Yeah, and th- there was this character who's actually named called Joe who comes up and gives um, Cobb the detonator. Right. And they have this exchange where she's like, here you go, Marshall. I think she says, be careful, Marshall. And, and he says, he tells her to stay safe too. But they made a point of naming her, which was interesting. So I almost think on some level, they're kind of aware of it. <laughs> but not enough to give them like substantial parts i guess 
but it's the first episode so i'll give him a chance i know that sasha banks has been cast so yeah what i would like to see from the mandalorian is a matriarchy <laughs> i'd love mm. to see a good old matriarchy yeah i mean who knows he's gonna presumably keep going on these side quests for better or worse yeah um so yeah he could go anywhere next we don't have to stay on tatooine um, I presume we'll see a little bit more of it if they are going to follow up with the Boba stuff. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a big galaxy out there. So come on. <laughs> also, tell me if you um, have also like registered this. But is it just me or have there been lots of episodes where Mandalorian goes to a community, he becomes close friends with, forms a close bond with one person from that community who is played by a significant guest star and then every other person in that community is like a faceless extra and there might be like a handful of like people in that community who get like one or two perfunctory lines but they're not actually characters and then the idea is about how the Mandalorian teaches them a lesson in cooperation (laughs) it does have that Saturday morning cartoon feel to it yes And if that's what they're going for, that's fine. Like, there's no you know, shame it, in that. There's no shame in that. It is what it is. Yeah, I, I. That's what kind of we're talking about. I presume that they're gonna outgrow that at some point and go deeper in the second season, right? Because that's what you'd expect it to do. Um, just remains to be seen. Yeah, but yeah, it is a tad formulaic, and that's why I think it's totally valid to look at this and be like, oh, they're getting together to slay a monster again, <laughs> save the town folk. <laughs> But it's still enjoyable. Yeah, you know, it's just it's just not reinventing the wheel. So exactly, I feel like it was very much like a good adventure on its own terms, but it wasn't about propelling the story forward, and that's okay as long as we get other episodes that do propel the story forward. So mm. yeah, I'm curious to see what happens next and if there is any like significant narrative thrust, I guess. Yeah, and like you say, I really hope that we get that follow up on that Boba ending. You know, she can't just tease us by showing Tamora Morrison gloomily looking out into the middle distance <laughs> and then not immediately follow that up. I need to see what's going to happen. Well, yeah, because I've seen some fans speculating on whether it actually is Boba or if it's another clone. But yeah, that would be quite cruel to like have this entire episode about the significance of Boba's armor and how it's saved this town distinct from him and how it kind of has this life of its own now and um has had that adventure with Cobb Vanth and now is kind of being reunited with the Mandalorian culture you have all of that tied up with Boba and his iconography and his history and then you show someone who looks like Boba and it turns out not to be Boba uh, I think that would disappoint quite a lot of people yeah no I agree I think there would be a lot of pissed fans I saw some people suggest it might be Captain Rex from the Clone Wars um mm. but from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I know you've actually watched the Clone Wars and I haven't, but my understanding is that the clones, they were sort of configured to age more rapidly. Um, No, actually, I think this is in Attack of the Clones they introduced this. So they were configured to age more rapidly. So basically by the time that the Mandalorian occurs, they'd either be very old men or dead. (laughs) This is what's confusing me, because in Return of the Jedi, there's a background character who they've since kind of teased I don't think it's canon canon but they've since kind of teased like maybe that's Rex but that would only be a few years before this right but um so does Boba himself not have that fast aging 
Um, yeah, I think it was turned off, so he just ages like a normal human being. Oh, how convenient. <laughs> well, uh, to be fair, I think it is because he was given to Django Fett as basically a son. So yeah. he obviously wanted a son with like a normal human lifespan. Um, but I right. agree, it is also convenient. So, But yeah, I think there's every reason to believe it's Boba Fett, essentially. Yeah, and I'm still keeping the hope alive that he has Fennec. Oh god, yeah, I really hope so. Like, that character was so cool, and she'd just be wasted if she were killed like that. It would be a horrible, horrible waste of Ming-Na Wen. So, please, save her. They could set up shop together. Maybe they'll finally find happiness, and yeah, Boba Fett might realise that that's what the meaning of life is, through forming close, loving connections with other human beings, and not going out collecting bounties on people. Hey, why not bring back Toro Kalkan too? <laughs> Why not? Just have everyone from Chapter 5 again. Just have the whole team. <laughs> Got to make the most out of all those some um, Tatooine characters while they can get them. Yeah, but, but if, if if the next episode is even on Tatooine, maybe there's like a bit of a break from Boba and then we come back to him in a few episodes. Oh God, people will be so frustrated if that happens. I know, but that might be why they do it, because they know that it's like a it's a hook. Yeah, no, I think it's very likely that they will do that. Um even though it would be annoying. So we will see. Time will tell. So yeah, aside from that, like, what is the Mandalorian's goal now? Because he was out there trying to find another Mandalorian and he's got the armor, but to what end? Like, is he just going to kind of carry that around <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> until he happens to come across another Mandalorian? Because he's got no lead now. Yeah, I guess it just you goes know, into was... a cupboard on the Razor Crest. So maybe that's literally going to be like the thrust of this whole season. It's just going to be him like wandering around following leads for where Mandalorians might be. And I, I really feel like this whole thing could have just been avoided if at the end of season one, obviously the Mandalorians, they'll leave the Enclave to like help him and then they all like fly away. Like they could have just had a chat, you know, could have said, look, we'll rendezvous on this planet and then we'll sort it out from there. Don't you worry, mate. We'll see you then. Um, like it would have avoided all this confusion, but obviously that's not the stuff of drama. So, <laughs> yeah, maybe eventually he'll find his way back to the armorer, but um, probably not for a while because I think the idea is that he's meant to be out there by himself. Yeah, being independent dad. So, yeah. Any closing thoughts before we wind this up? Uh, we haven't mentioned Constable Zuvio. Did you oh see god Zuvio? yes no i did wasn't he at the fight at the beginning yeah oh, at least it yeah. looked like him no it probably it probably isn't constable zuvia but <laughs> well it could be like the new yoda kind of like I- i'm sure there is a species name for whatever constable zuvia's species is but but with that specific hat <laughs> it was just nice to see him crop up yeah no, that's quite interesting because like so he was the police officer on jakku when like Ray was a teenager basically so like this is like pre-Ray so like yeah we're seeing the young Constable Zuvio Chronicles <laughs> and we get him in an episode called The Marshal <laughs> so, so it all ties together but I have seen some calls on the internet for like a Timothy Oliphant spin-off from The Mandalorian so what I'd like to see is like a buddy cop show where like him and Constable Zuvio team up and he's basically <laughs> the mentor to Constable Zuvio and teaches him the ways of being a good policeman that would be nice I think people might be blinded by Timothy Oliphant's attractiveness <laughs> can you imagine <laughs> don't get me wrong he was good in the episode but I don't I don't want him to be like the main character <laughs> I do feel like if he were to stay on Mos Pelgo, I feel like that'd be a deathly boring TV show. Exactly. (laughs) 
they would have the to the whole send point is away. nothing happens the crate dragon was their one disruption to peace you know he got rid of the miners so it's all good but they Should could do it as like coronation street style shows set in the stars universe where it's just like the petty but... like human dramas of like people living in Mos Pelgo and occasionally you see like a Jara or <laughs> I think that's kind of what I'm almost struggling to adjust to, just how small the story feels. And it's refreshing. It's in a different way. Um, I think once... I'm not calling them filler episodes because I don't think they are because, you know, you see important development and these these explorations of themes that we've been talking about. Um, But I think it comes down to, again, that feeling of, like, the Saturday cartoon where he's kind of stuck in this cycle. And whether that's too... The creator's intent to like show that he needs to start making different kinds of choices and think kind of think bigger basically um or if that's just kind of what they're going for with the show so yeah and i think that has yet to reveal itself so we've got to wait and see yeah okay awesome well i certainly had fun talking about that with you kirsty so thank you very much and i believe our conversation lasted longer than the actual episode so classic scavengers <laughs> horde i was surprised when i saw that it was going to be 55 minutes long it doesn't feel that way when you're watching it though, yeah does it? it goes very quickly like it feels like the length of most of the season one episodes which i feel were closer yeah. to half an hour so yeah definitely sped by very breezily yeah i'm assuming that next week will be close to that again but we'll say I, w- I wouldn't be complaining if they're if they're as long as that yeah definitely um but yeah like um any closing words Kirsty? um just that i hope people don't think we're being too negative just because we're kind of having fun with it and poking fun at tropes that... so many yeah. tropes <laughs> and i love tropes just to be clear tropes and they're having are fun. fun with them because they're you know as we said they're kind of playing in the star wars sandbox with these influences that have obviously been there from the beginning in star wars but like almost to a heightened degree you know it's like oh this is a western so we're gonna be a western <laughs> it's obviously that element to star wars but it's not the only element so yeah no you can tell um john favreau is just gleeful about it all which is quite endearing yep and just quickly to announce some news um about our schedule while the mandalorian is showing our hope is that we're going to be able to do an episode every week obviously we can't count on what real life will throw at us um, so that might be subject to change, but my hope and Kirsty's hope is that we'll be able to stick to a weekly schedule while the Mandalorian is showing. So yeah, hopefully we can all look forward to more Scavengers Horde because I think we both enjoy recording it, and it's my understanding that some of you also enjoy listening to it. So thank you everyone for listening, and yeah, I'll do the sign off now. So I'm Rachel, and you can find me on Twitter at Rachel1918. I'm Kirstie, and you can find both of us on Twitter at Scavengers Horde. Until next time, bye! Bye!